energy independence is a very interesting topic and one that over the last 10 years has changed a lot with natural gas. And we've become really an energy independent because of natural gas. If you move away from fossil fuels, the only way that you can have enough electricity to power what the existing economy has and then what the future economy looks like with a lot more electric vehicles uh, and therefore a lot more needed electricity to power those vehicles and replace the fossil fuel that's currently powering them, you're going to need nuclear. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. Nuclear energy. Ask 10 different people what they think about nuclear energy and where it fits into our clean energy plans, and you'll likely get 10 different answers. To the general public, nuclear energy is incredibly misunderstood, mostly because it's rarely talked about. Nuclear has a real communications issue that it needs to solve in order to rightfully take its place as a critical pillar in our clean energy future. Today on Animalia, we're talking about it, and we're going to clarify a lot of things for you that we hope will make you as enthusiastic about nuclear energy as we are. I think of nuclear as sort of this orphan in the larger energy picture. Think renewables such as solar, wind, and hydro as one high school type of click. And then the other click is, of course, oil, coal, and natural gas. And nuclear is kind of a loner. Each energy click is polite and says hi in the hallway, but doesn't really invite nuclear to the party. The renewable energy click cites historical issues with nuclear accidents and radioactive waste as reasons not to make it one of its own. This despite the fact that nuclear energy is a zero emissions energy source. It's as clean as solar and wind when it comes to greenhouse gases. While yes, the process of building a nuclear plant and mining uranium do produce carbon, so too do the construction of solar panels and the mining of cadmium and gallium. Nuclear is also a consistent, dependable clean energy source that does not change with the weather. And as we'll learn today, the future reactors and plants are getting much smaller, much more efficient, and much safer. And there are vast improvements happening in our ability to minimize nuclear waste and safely store it and reuse it. The fossil fuel click, meanwhile, cites the high cost of nuclear energy compared to coal and natural gas. The plants are much more expensive to set up and need more government funding to support something conservatives don't like. They want low-cost, high-volume energy from their fossil fuels and believe there are other ways to manage the greenhouse gas problem, such as atmospheric carbon removal. However, it's the upfront costs that are indeed more expensive, but getting lower with smaller plants and smaller reactors. And once they're built, the power generation costs of nuclear are 27% lower than coal and 29% lower than natural gas. So why has nuclear been so orphaned? It's a combination of issues, ranging from those we just cited to the negative connotation of the word itself due to its association with nuclear weaponry. And then we have historical disasters we make movies and TV shows about, like Chernobyl, that keep that doomsday idea fresh in the mind. That, despite the fact that a chance of a nuclear meltdown with modern-day technology are lower than getting struck by lightning. Oh, and if a meltdown were to happen... Thanks to innovations like self-cooling small modular reactors, they won't ever create the same scale of damage that we've seen in the past. Today, the U.S. produces more nuclear energy than any country in the world across 93 operational reactors. 20% of our energy comes from nuclear. Yet we've been stuck in the mud in terms of funding innovation and new development in this space for several decades. Well, that's now changing. Nuclear is a big part of the recent infrastructure package, and there is more startup innovation happening in this space right now than ever before. It's time we update everyone on the state of nuclear and how critical it is to getting to a zero emission future. We may have no chance of getting there on the energy front without it. Today at Animalia, we're joined by Jason Herbert, Director of Government Affairs for Energy Northwest, a major energy agency in the state of Washington, providing a lot of renewable energy to utility companies, including, of course, nuclear. Prior to Energy Northwest, Jason spent a decade on Capitol Hill working in Congress with a focus on energy and environmental policy. If you want to know more about nuclear, this is the episode for you. Before we get started, 
we want to remind everyone about our totally free weekly newsletter here at Animalia. Each week, we identify three different stories in the world of conservation and climate, and we summarize them for you in a super easy five-minute read, straight to your inbox. It's the fastest and easiest way to stay informed and grow your knowledge about things happening all over the world to protect this planet. With every story, we answer the why and propose solutions so we can stay upbeat and positive about our ability to address the climate crisis. Subscribe today. When you do, we'll donate a dollar to the Environmental Defense Fund. The link is in our podcast notes. Now, let's go meet Jason and talk nuclear energy. Yeah, so I'm the uh, Senior Director of uh, External Affairs for New Nuclear Development at Energy Northwest, which very much means that I'm in charge of government affairs, public relations, stakeholder engagement, pretty much anything that's external facing around developing uh, new nuclear resources is within my wheelhouse. And prior to that, I was Energy Northwest's Director of Government Affairs for four years. And then before that, I worked on and off Capitol Hill and in D.C. working on energy and environmental policy for about eight years. And then kind of across the industry, I sit on the advisory council for the Nuclear Innovation Alliance on the Nuclear Matters Steering Committee. And then I serve on the boards of some of our more regional trade associations for the electric industry as well. And Energy Northwest, what type of company is that? So we're a power agency essentially created by the Washington State Legislature in 1957 to work with other public utilities uh, in Washington State and really across the West to use economies of scale to improve the services and the generation that we provide. So really, we don't have any retail customers. We're not sending power to your home. We generate electricity from nuclear, wind, solar, hydro. We pretty much have a portfolio. It's everything in our portfolio is carbon-free resources. And then we provide that to either Bonneville Power Administration or to utilities directly. And then they provide that electricity for their customers. So are those utility companies buying the power from Energy Northwest? In a way, yes. I mean, we're not for profit, so we're not making any money off of it. They essentially just pay us for what the cost of generating that electricity would be. And who funds Energy Northwest? So it's a, like I said, we're kind of self-funding through those projects and that we get you know, paid back the money. Um, we get paid for the cost of the electricity that we generate. And then we do have some other smaller projects on electric vehicles and some other renewal projects that we work on where we do have some minor margins, but that goes back into a business development fund that allows us to then build other new projects. Like we just finished a four megawatt solar facility with a one megawatt lithium ion battery just north of the Tri-Cities. Got it. So it's technically a nonprofit? Yeah, not for profit, I guess would be a better way to describe it. Okay. Yeah, I know those classifications get wonky. Um, well, excited to talk about nuclear energy. I've been, you know, as we talked about, I've been meaning to figure, find someone to talk to about this because, you know, there's, there's a sort of, you know, kind of big debate and divide in terms of, you know, I'll call traditional energy and fossil fuels and the folks who, you know, legitimately don't think that we need to get off of that, that there's other ways, either, either they don't acknowledge the seriousness of climate change overall or fossil fuels role in it, or they, they think there are other ways to, you know, remove carbon and, and handle it without needing to wean off fossil fuels, folks that are really key on, let's call it, you know, energy independence for the U.S. and that being the route to get there and, and so forth. And then there's the renewable folks who are all, you know, usually talking about solar, wind, hydro, occasionally biomass as well. And nuclear seems to be this, you know, kind of redheaded stepchild that kind of sits somewhere, you know, it's like, it's like this powerful, you know, really talented athlete that is not really on either team for some reason. That's how I kind of think of it. And I can't figure out why, because, you know, look, draw a baseball analogy. Nuclear looks like a five tool player yeah, and it is. Yet it's just, uh, it's kind of sitting there on its own. And so, yeah, I just to, to start off, what is that a fair analogy? Like, am I? You're you're in the space. I'm only you know I I'm I'm an energy consumer. I'm not I don't I don't work in the field. But it always seems like nuclear doesn't in the minds of most people live in either camp. Yeah, it's not a you know heavy pollutant, carbon intensive fossil fuel. But a lot of people don't recognize it as 
sort of uh, a renewable and the wave of the future of energy. And it just kind of sitting in its own space. Yeah. And I think that's a accurate description of, of kind of where we stand as an industry. And it's, it's unfortunate. I think we bear uh, part of the responsibility for that, you know, for 30 some odd years, we kind of took a position of out of sight, out of mind. We wanted to continue operating the plants that we had built in the U S but we really weren't innovating and looking to build new plants and new designs and, and to really pursue technological progress in the field. And that allowed us to kind of get painted with a bad brush by each camp. But I like your, your analogy of kind of a five tool player. I mean, if you look at renewables, the, and we, as Energy Northwest, we have renewables in our portfolio, we like them. The downside to renewables is they're weather dependent. You don't necessarily know when the wind is gonna blow and when it's gonna blow hard enough to generate electricity, when it's gonna stop. And then with the sun, you know, you can a little bit more predictable, but there's only so much electricity that you can derive from that. So electricity is needed around the clock. And you're not just trying to meet kind of the average needs of the grid. You have to be able to meet the peak needs. So when it's really hot, when it's really cold, you need to make sure that you have enough generation on the system to do that. So nuclear is the one that kind of, and that's really where natural gas and coal have a big advantage is they can operate anytime, but they're not carbon free. Nuclear fits both of those rules. It's carbon free, like renewables, but it can operate around the clock. And we call it capacity factor, essentially how often the resource operates. And across the US, nuclear reactors operate 93% of the time uh, compared to coal and natural gas, which is about 55, 60%. And then wind and solar, which are in the 20 to 30%. And then depending where you are in the, the country, hydropower is anywhere between 40 and 60. So it is, a, it's a five tool player. It can do everything and it's carbon free, does not emit any greenhouse gases. And the other real big benefit is on like a natural gas plant where you're kind of reliant on the supply chain to bring you new fuel. And if you don't have it, like we saw a couple of years ago where some pipelines went offline and froze and you couldn't oper operate natural gas plants during a major cold spell in the Northwest. At nuclear, we have enough fuel on site to operate for years at a time. So anything that happens outside of the gates, that plant can keep operating regardless of any externalities. And let's just, if you can help outline just how clean nuclear energy is from a carbon standpoint. And, you know, we're going to get into this discussion around, you know, nuclear waste management and some of those, some th things that the nuclear industry, you know, does need to keep improving upon and have, and, you know, the, the opponents have some reason to be skeptical. I mean, if you look back 30 years on, on some of that stuff, and we'll get into that, but in terms of the greenhouse gases, just like, help people understand how efficient from a air pollution standpoint, nuclear is compared on one end to fossil fuels, to coal, natural gas, and on the other end to solar or wind. Yeah. So I think a good way to put it in perspective is, like I said, we, you know, the generation of nuclear power doesn't emit any greenhouse gases. It's essentially just heat from the fission process that's turning water into steam and the steams are powering turbines. So if you ever drive by a nuclear plant and you see steam coming out of the plant, that's just vaporized water that's going up to power the turbines. So as we kind of look ahead and you say, okay, what's the, the full impact and how is it so clean? I think one, a good example is the 93 plants that we have operating in the U.S., they reduce, if you re replace them with fossil emitters like natural gas or coal, it would be the equivalent of about removing 100 million cars from the road is the amount of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases that you're saving by using nuclear instead of natural gas and coal. And that's about the number of cars that we currently have on the road in the US right now. So, I mean, the magnitude is, is massive on the energy density, how much energy you're creating from such a small space that is carbon free and no other resource can claim those same benefits. Yeah. And, and I know I've, I've run into some folks who will say, well, the, you know, there's, there's a, there's a big footprint on what it takes to build a plant or to mine uranium. And, you know, there's also a footprint to build solar panels. Right. I mean, like that, it's, it's really more what we're talking about is once it's up and running, how clean is the energy production? Of course, building anything has a footprint and some resource needs, but, but yeah, I, I, I think people forget sometimes that it does also take resources to build, build windmills and build solar panels and, and also sometimes clear land for, for them as well. That's the other advantage I've always seen of nuclear is it just takes up a lot less space than, you know, a big solar wind farm. Yeah. And I mean, we have a, 
100 megawatt wind farm, 98 megawatt wind farm just outside of Kennewick that has 63 turbines. And the footprint is about the same size as our existing nuclear plant that generates 1200 megawatts of electricity compared to 100 megawatts. And as that's far per, as what we send to day? the, well, that's what just it's capable of producing. So the wind farm day. actually, yeah, on average yeah, just to put, produces, or thir- it's about, it's per hour, per megawatt hour. So, and just to put that in context, hours context for people. And I apologize, you've already said this. What is the average US household use in megawatts uh, per day of electricity? So about one megawatt hour would provide enough electricity for 150 homes. So one way to think about it would be a thousand megawatts could essentially power the city, a city the size of Seattle. So Columbia Generating Station, our nuclear plant could power, you know, on average, the city of Seattle with just that power. Compared to the the same size wind farm produces 100 meg- megawatts, is that correct? Yeah, can produce 100 megawatts, but that's only when the wind's blowing. So on average, it's less than that. So you're really having to build, if you were to say, you know, you couldn't just build 1,000 megawatts of wind and say that will power the city of Seattle. You'd really have to build five to seven times that amount in a very disparate geographical locations, hoping that the wind is blowing at some point somewhere and able to provide you the electricity hmm. you need. Got it. And on the political spectrum, and I and I, I want to be careful, I kind of wanted to do this right up front because I don't want to make this a political discussion at all, really. And it, it shouldn't be. And I'm much more interested in, you know, get, digging into the innovation happening, happening in the space. But politics do play a role, of course, in our energy policies. You know that as well as anybody yeah. who worked on Capitol Hill. And so it, it seems like nuclear is almost not mentioned. I see a lot of, you know, kind of the, the conservative... And to be fair, not all conservatives think this way. So there are conservatives who absolutely recognize the importance of getting off fossil fuels. They just might want to do it at a different pace or a different way. But predominantly, the right wing is around defending fossil fuels. And if they do acknowledge the urgency of climate, it's usually focusing on carbon capture and other technologies to counteract that, but not to get us off of fossil fuels. And predominantly on the left wing, it's about investing in renewables. And that's usually solar, wind, hydro, as I mentioned. And nuclear, again, doesn't really get mentioned in either side. I'm curious when nuclear comes up, whether it's in congressional debates or you know state debates, what are the common critiques from the left? And what are the common critiques from the right on nuclear? So nuclear is a very interesting issue when it, politically, as, as you kind of mentioned. Sometimes it feels like it's the monkey in the middle, like between renewables on one side and, and fossils on the other, and the ball's just being thrown over our head back and forth. But that's been, been really changing over the last five years and really the last 10 years. But in the last five years, we've seen a lot of uh, movement really on both sides of the aisle towards being more supportive of nuclear, but it's still not talked about all that often. So from the left, the criticisms usually center around safety, nuclear waste, things along those lines. From the right, it comes down to an economic argument that it's not cost competitive with natural gas. And there isn't, on the right, there isn't as much benefit given to its carbon-free attributes as you would see on the left side of the aisle. However, that's really been changing. I mean, the previous administration was very supportive of new nuclear and set up programs to develop those. The Biden administration, since it's come in, has been extremely supportive of nuclear and continuing those programs and even creating new ones. And then as we're seeing kind of what's moving through Congress right now in the infrastructure package, there is a lot of very pro-nuclear language in there that will help the industry not only you know, continue on its current path, but continue to grow and innovate and build new technologies as a way to help address climate change in the future. So I think you're seeing both sides kind of move towards being more accepting uh, and open to nuclear, but for different reasons. Is there a dollar amount in the in the latest, the three the three and a half trillion dollar infrastructure bill? Is there a dollar amount spec for nuclear specifically, or is it sort of in the renewable space and it's and we don't know how much would actually be allocated towards nuclear? Well, there's a lot of different nuclear programs within both the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation package. So it's hard to give a dollar amount, but it's in the probably all together in the tens of billions. But the the key things are, is, you know, there's been a nuclear production tax credit for new nuclear to be built, but not for existing nuclear. So unlike wind or solar, there's no production tax credit. The infrastructure bill would provide a nuclear production tax credit, which will be very helpful to the industry in competing with renewables kind of on a level playing field. The other big advancement was the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program that the Department of Energy and Congress created in 2020 
to demonstrate and commercially operate the first two advanced reactors in the U.S. by essentially 2027, 2028. And that's through a 50-50 cost share with private industry and the Department of Energy. And that's that program is actually funded for the next four or five years um, through the infrastructure bill, which will give a lot more certainty when you're having to raise private investment to match the 50% that's coming from the government, not worrying, is Congress going to give you the money this year? Are you going to operate under continuing resolution and not get as much money as you need because you're going to get what you got last year? It takes a lot of that uncertainty away. So those things are, are very helpful and they're showing a commitment to kind of continuing these programs that have just been implemented in the past few years, but are showing immense promise. Yeah, the, the twisted irony of the, the right-wing critique on costs is that if fossil fuel companies had to pay for their pollution, it, it all of a sudden the costs would look a lot different. But it's because, you know, traditionally we've treated environment as a economic externality that companies don't have to pay for. And so that would, that would change quite a bit if, if that were the case, which is what should happen in my opinion. But we'll see, we'll see if that ever comes to fruition. There is, there is movement and progress on carbon tax. And so Europe more than the U.S. so far, but yeah, I mean, I do think it's we'll we'll get there. Is it then fair to think of nuclear? It's almost hard to imagine in this day and age any any bipartisan or even potential bipartisan topic because it's you know we've been really pushed to extremes on the political spectrum, and there's not a lot of discourse. There's not a lot of room in the middle. Is it fair to look at? You know, it seems like there's two things that stand out to me, big ticket items that could be actually bipartisan support. One of them is taking down the, the monopolies of big tech, both left and right don't like that for different reasons as well, but they both don't like it. And the other one is nuclear. And as you said, you know, different, both left and right have different critiques, but also have different reasons to support it. So is it fair to, 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 to think nuclear could be, you know, a, a bipartisan supported issue in the coming years at a time where that's really hard to find. Yeah, I think it has the attributes and the benefits to really appeal kind of to both sides and be that non-polarized issue that is such a rarity these days, unfortunately. In a a way, nuclear is kind of almost like the the definition of a compromise. Both sides are a little bit unhappy, you know, like neither side's completely in love with it, but they also aren't completely against it. And it kind of falls in that middle ground. So that is not a bad place to be right now because we're, like you said earlier, the focus is on renewables and fossil fuels and the fight over there, each of those. But there's this in, you know, indispensable nuclear industry in the US that's providing 20% of all of our electricity year over year. That's carbon free and 56% of all of our carbon free electricity year over year. But it also creates lots of jobs and is really important to our national security and you know, continued leadership on a global stage. You know, maybe nuclear energy can bring us together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be something. So that 20% number, I think most people probably don't realize the U.S. has, is there any country that's even higher than us or are we the highest on the percentage of energy that comes from nuclear? I, th- I think we're the highest, correct? We are by far the highest. The next closest yeah. country would be, I think, China that has 54 reactors. We have 93 currently operating. And China's uh, about 5%, I believe. Yeah, about 5%. China has a lot energy more people, needs are different. But, yeah, but yeah, a lot more people. Yeah. But yeah, that, the, the interesting dichotomy is the US is getting more of its energy from nuclear than any other country in the world, yet also seems to be behind on investing in it and its innovation compared to, let's say, China, Russia, some of these countries. Is that fair to say? It's fair, and it's unfortunate. I mean, uh, most of the nuclear plants that operate in the United States are based on designs, you know, really from the 1950s and the 1960s. Now, there have been immense improvements in the technology, and there have been upgrades, but we haven't really gone into the the next generations and iterations of where the technology could go. We've barely scratched the surface, and I think a lot of that was what we talked about earlier, kind of out of sight, out of mind. But there also wasn't, you know, a lot of government investment and catalysts to do research and development on these new technologies and find ways to get them commercialized into the market. And we're starting to see that now, but we are lagging behind Russia and China. And they're looking at it in a geopolitical sense, which is as we as the world seeks to decarbonize as we need to. And with COP26 coming up, this is gonna be a big issue there. Having a source of electricity that is carbon free, but also extremely reliable and dispatchable, meaning it can be available 
anytime when you need it, especially for developing countries, that's a extremely valuable resource to have. And the countries that are able to provide them with the technology and the expertise to operate that technology is going to have a geopolitical edge in the future. So when you're looking at this, we are kind of lagging behind them, not just from developing these new technologies, but also on how we want to play a leading role kind of in that climate debate with other countries and going in and saying, hey, we can help you get to where you need to be with these technologies. And that's where what Russia and China are doing right now. What what caused this sort of long lag period we've had in investing in R&D? And, you know, things like small module reactors, which we'll, we'll get into, you know, maybe they could be already viable at scale if we had we started investing in it 20, 30 years ago, the way we're doing it now, as an example. What, what were the drivers of this long, you know, sort of kind of stalemate period where we continue to use nuclear energy, but we're not innovating and making it safer and more efficient? You know, I don't think there's one simple answer to that question. I'd say there were several things that happen. One, I would say nuclear weapons coming before nuclear energy was very unfortunate. I once heard someone speak and said, you know, if we never created nuclear bombs and it only created, you know, commercial nuclear reactors for clean energy, that's what we would be using all over the world now. But you wouldn't have that stigma attached with them and and the mushroom clouds and in people's minds and all and all those things. And so that I think has really hurt us. And then accidents like what happened at Chernobyl or Three Mile Island or Fukushima also play a big role. But in each of those, except for Chernobyl, no one died as a result of those accidents or of the radiation. And, and Three Mile Island continued to operate until I believe two years ago when it finally shut down and was able to operate safely and without any you know, major con- contamination or problems. So I think those things played a, a role in it too, to say, okay, we need to, you know, as an industry, we really need to focus on safety and we need to just kind of keep our head down and get our work done and not try to do anything new and let's just protect what we have. And I think there's also a kind of a sociological component too, which is for the generation that grew up during the Cold War and was around for Three Mile Island and, and for Chernobyl, that was very fresh in their mind. But what you see from a lot of the younger generation, such as millennials and others that are much more open to technological innovation and advancement, and there isn't kind of an inherent fear of new technology, there is much more of an acceptance. And I think that combined with their desire to see a cleaner climate, less pollution, and more clean energy has led to a little bit of a resurgence that we're seeing now domestically for the U.S. nuclear industry. So a lot of different reasons why it happened and unfortunate that it did, but I, there's no empirical evidence to point to which was the one that you know, led us to kind of stop innovating in this space. So let's maybe, I was trying to think if I want to go through the, I found a list of all the detractors of nuclear energy and I figure it'd be good to kind of just, you know, sort of dispel each one of those. But I want to start first with the innovations happening in the space and then because we'll probably cite some of those in countering some of the some of the opponent arguments. So can you help us sort of lay out small module reactors being one of them and just understanding what those are exactly, that being one example, and any other key innovations, critical innovations happening in nuclear right now to make it more efficient, to make it safer, to you know, all those all those kind of things? Yeah, and too many to mention. There are uh, 50, you know, advanced nuclear and SMR technology companies trying to bring uh, designs to market currently just in the U.S. And that doesn't include what's going on around the globe in places like China and Russia that are also developing their own designs. But the technologies that are really interesting, you know, small modular reactors take their safety basis to a whole nother level through passive safety features. And also the, the modular kind of applies to two things, both the fact that you don't just have one major reactor like you would in an existing plant that has a huge dome over it and it's just producing, you know, 1000 megawatts of power, a huge amount of power at all time. But the modular reactors, you know, so take new scale, for instance, that has 12 different modules capable of producing 70, 80 megawatts each. And those can each be taken offline at different times and refueled. So the plant never has to go offline and all of the safety systems, if anything were to happen, it can safely shut down by taking the steam that's created and turning it back into water and cool the reactor over time so that no human action is needed. So almost all of them, I would like to say it's kind of synonymous with driving a car. The way the current fleet works, our existing reactors are 
there have to be people in that control room to shut down the reactor, you know, to make it stop. Whereas with advanced reactors and small modular reactors, if you just, you know, were driving the car and, you know, fell asleep, it will safely shut down without any human intervention, any action needed. It will just slowly taper off and nothing, there can be no meltdown, no catastrophic event. And that's, and each design is different, but take X-Energy, who Energy Northwest is partnering with, you know, their major breakthrough is through triso fuel, uh, tri-structural isotropic fuel. And what they've done is taken these and turned them into fuel pellets, balls, essentially called pebbles, that are encased in um, six layers of ceramic and graphite coating. So for existing reactors, you have a massive containment dome above them to make sure that no, you know, radioactivity were to escape in the event of any type of incident. For these, the fuel is its own containment structure. So no, no fission products, no radioactivity can escape from that fuel ball. And for the X-Energy reactor, there are 220,000 of those balls essentially moving in through like a gumball machine. And once they've expended enough of their energy, enough of their fuel, they're taken out and a new ball is put in and it continues and continues on. And then when you're storing that fuel later on, you can store it much easy, much more easily because you're not having to worry about there being any type of release of radioactivity as well. So the innovations are numerous. And then that's just what we have essentially coming to market in the next five to 10 years. After that, you have travel and wave reactors and sodium fast reactors like TerraPower is working on. And then eventually you can get to fusion and thorium reactors that really take their safety case to a whole nother level. And also the benefits that they can provide from everything to water desalination, desalination to providing heat and steam for industrial processes as a lot more than just providing clean electricity to the grid, but it can also help decarbonize other parts of the economy as well. So the way the fuel pellets work, and I know you have one behind you in your, I do. your left yeah. shoulder there. I know folks can't see, but yeah, yeah. he's holding one now. It's about he's, the size of a cue ball. <laughs> Yeah, and he's not he's he's not turning into a radioactive sea creature or anything. Don't worry. So the radioactivity is contained within that pellet. Is that a fair way to understand yes. it? Yes. But then in terms of the storage and where you know for that specific system, what do we do with those pellets to safely store them? Can they be reused? Is there a way that nuclear can become circular in a way, or is there always going to be some you know, kind of runoff form of waste that needs to be stored or, or can nuclear become circular? It could become circular. And it honestly, we could be a lot, you know, not fully circular now where we wouldn't be able to use everything, but take France where they recycle and reprocess their fuel. And France, 75% of their electricity comes from nuclear. They're heavily invested in nuclear. If their population was larger, they, you know, uh, person for person, they probably generate more than, than we do. If you looked at it that way. They reprocess their fuel, so about 80% of their used or spent fuel is reprocessed and put back into existing reactors. So that's one thing that we could do. We just have never done it in the U.S., one, because of a Jimmy Carter-era executive order that prohibited us from doing that, but also economically it hasn't made sense. But one of the things that we're really looking at is trying to work with the federal government to say, hey, we should be setting up this domestic supply chain for fuel reprocessing so that we can use you know, right now we have it sitting out on pads. It, it's safely stored near Columbia Generating Station and steel and concrete casts. It can be stored there for 100 years at a time. It doesn't release anything. You can go eat lunch next to it. It's graded to withstand impact from a 747 airliner if it was flown into it. So extremely safe where it's stored now. You don't necessarily have to go put it into a deep bore repository somewhere and then forget about it forever. We only use about 5% of the energy that's available in each of those fuel pellets that are in existing reactors. And so you, you could reprocess all of that. And then some of the future reactors, like I mentioned, TerraPower's traveling wave reactor, some of the other reactor designs could take used fuel and use up almost all of the remaining energy potential in that fuel. So greatly reducing essentially the footprint. But if we're talking about the footprint too, that's, there's a major misperception on how much is out there. We've been generating electricity from nuclear power in this country essentially since the mid-1950s, if you took all the fuel that ever went into uh, nuclear reactors and stacked it one on top of the, another, and these are tiny you know, fuel pellets, sizes of like several pieces of rice or maybe the size of like your tip of your pinky finger, would fit on a football field 24 feet deep. So that's it. For everything that we've ever used to power 20% of the U.S. economy, 
for over 70 years. That's what it comes down to. Hmm. So the footprint isn't, isn't vast. It, and it's very manageable with the systems that we currently have. This is a total kind of hypothetical borderline. Well, you tell me how science fiction it is versus, versus potentially real. But if we continue to improve on making nuclear circular, and we also continue to make these reactors smaller, <clears throat> is it possible that in the near-term future, we could have reactors in every city, every neighborhood even? And is it possible in the long term that like every home could have its own reactor and be running off of that self-sufficiently? Probably not in our lifetimes, but I mean, theoretically with the technology, that is completely possible. And especially with the, like set with the types of fuel that are being designed now, like the TRISO fuel that really is, you know, extremely, extremely safe. And you could, you know, be around it and not get any type of radioactivity from it you could site them much closer. So a lot of the advanced reactors, so an existing reactor essentially has to have a 10 mile emergency planning zone around it. So they need a site about 500 acres large to make sure that if anything did happen at a reactor, it's far enough away from the public that everything could kind of be contained within the site. For advanced reactors and small modular reactors, the sites will be much smaller because of their safety improvements to probably be 25 to 35 acres, which allows them for you to build those much closer to cities into load centers. And that also alleviates the need to build a lot of new transmission, which is actually probably going to be our biggest challenge as we decarbonize, because the only thing harder than building new nuclear is probably actually building new hydro, which takes longer somehow over 20 years. And then harder than that is building new transmission because no one wants power lines in their backyard. And that's, that, that just unfortunately is where we stand in our current transmission system is aging. So being able to have a, abundant clean energy that can be cited, you know, very close to where the demand is would be invaluable. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier, the, the innovation of these reactors becoming self-cooling is so, so important. And that seems to be one of the most important breakthroughs of, of all that have happened out there. On the other side of it, are there any innovations in nuclear or any theories in nuclear that you're more skeptical of where you say, Hey, I know this is happening, but given where I stand and my understanding of nuclear energy, I'm skeptical of this angle or, or this approach. And here's why. I wouldn't say there's any skeptical of there. There just might be some that are too early in the development process where we don't have enough information to really gauge how effective they would be and how possible it would be. I know you want to talk about fusion a little bit later. You know, I think fusion has immense potential, but how far away from actually having to be, commercially available and on a large enough scale is something that I'm, I'm skeptical of. We understand the science of it, but do we have the current technological capability to really harness that power and deploy it? And that's one of the, I guess that would be the area. And I, I wouldn't even classify as being skeptical. I'd be optimistically curious to see how it plays out. We can touch on that just since you brought it up, just for, for folks listening, the difference between uh, nuclear fission and fusion. The way I try to think about it, and I'm probably oversimplifying it um, because, again, I'm not in the space, is fission is splitting atoms and fusion is is clotting atoms. Yeah, um, pretty much took okay. the words out of my mouth. Okay. I mean, well, yeah, so with, with, with fission, you're essentially taking a, a heavier, less stable isotope. So for most nuclear reactors, almost all of them, that would be uranium-235, and you're bombarding it essentially with a neutron and then creating, you know, that's going to create fission where the atom splits apart releases more high-speed neutrons that are traveling around, those hit another atom, and you start to see a reaction to where you're creating huge amounts of energy and heat that then creates steam from water and that goes up and powers turbines. Fusion is the, the inverse of that, where you're actually taking essentially two hydrogen atoms and then using immense heat and energy to combine them into one helium atom that has some neutrons and other byproducts that would come off. But that would then create a self-sustaining chain reaction. So that's the way to think about it is you're, instead of splitting them apart, you're combining them together with fusion and it's, and it creates something that is a near limitless source of electricity because it will continue on, on a self-sustaining chain reaction. Yeah. And fusion is essentially how our sun creates energy. Yep. And we know that the sun is pretty good at self-sustaining itself. Yeah. The, the net energy is kind of on a, 
on the delta or on the deficit. That's the biggest challenge is you, you need more energy to kind of create that fusion reaction yeah. than you get out of it. But there was a major breakthrough recently at uh, Lawrence with more national yeah. lab. Yeah. Uh, where they were actually able to reach the ignition point, to, which is essentially the point where you do start to see a uh, chain reaction that's self-sustaining. It only occurred for one trillionth of a second, yes, but that's what I it was, was a major breakthrough. And to put, you know, and the amount of energy that was created was equivalent to essentially 6% of all the energy that we get from the sun on a given day. So massive amount of energy created from that one trillion of a second. So that's what we're talking about. And if you're looking out into the future and really sustaining you know, a global economy with clean energy, that resource would be um, such a game changer. I, I wouldn't even know how to quantify it as, you know, what that could yeah. mean for us. It was, it was a hell of a trillionth of a second. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I did read about that last week and yeah, yeah, that does seem like the holy grail, if you will, of energy. If we can actually make fusion work, we would, we would not be debating fossil fuels or wind or, or even nuclear fission for the mat, for that matter, if, if we, if, and when we get there. So it's good that we are investing in it, but there's no timetable for our listeners on like when exactly that is going to become economically viable. But I do think it's a matter of when, not if it, it yeah. will happen. It's just might not be, you know, we can't rely on fusion as a solution to the near term climate challenges. That we I, have. I, I compare it similar to getting to the true general intelligence in, in AI. It is a matter of, of, of when, not if anymore, but I, we don't know if it could be 20 to 30 years. It could be 50 to 60 to 70 years. Although I think when we get there, that has a, a lot more negative byproducts than getting to fusion. Yes. <laughs> probably. We get the general intelligence for AI and we know well, and that's a great thing with fusion is the byproduct is helium, which is actually in short supply around the yeah. world anyways. So yeah. it, it solves two problems. Yes. The byproduct of general intelligence is, machines will call the shots. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've seen the matrix. It didn't look great. I am a Terminator fan. Also didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't work. The man well. Didn't either, either, yeah. So I wanted to read through just the common critiques. I, I, I kind of found 10. We've talked about some of them, so we can, you'll probably just rapid fire, just answer these real quickly. Some of them are more left-wing based. Some of them are more right-wing based and they're not listed in any particular order. So this is not quantified by how, how heavy the critique is or how popular it is. So let's start for the first one. I think the first one is the most common one is nuclear waste. And so where are we today putting aside the innovation we're trying to make? Where, how is waste stored today? And what, like help people understand how much of an issue this really is in the current world of nuclear. So if you take an, an existing reactor, right? There are all these fuel bundles of, of rods of, of uranium that are in the, reactor and so every two years reactors go offline about a third of the fuel is replaced that fuel that's taken out of the reactor goes into a spent fuel facility a spent full fuel pool essentially a, a pool of water that allows it to decrease its radioactivity it's pulled out of there after several years and then put into above ground storage as i mentioned earlier in steel and concrete casts at Columbia Generating Station, for almost 40 years of operation, we have 36 of these casts. You know, it's not that large. It's about the footprint of a Walgreens, if you will. Those can be safely stored in there for 100 years. So unlike the waste that was created from atomic weapons production, like what was done at Hanford uh, near us in Washington State or Savannah River or Oak Ridge or any of the other sites around the country, which has all of this liquid waste, transuranic waste, just tons of, you know, really messy bad stuff that you don't want around. All of the waste, if you want to call it that, I call it used fuel or spent fuel, is solid. And it, it comes out, it's not going to deteriorate over time and become liquid type of waste or some type of goop. It's solid, it's in there. And so under the way we currently have it, it's stored in these above ground casts safely. If we needed to, we could just, if we didn't start to recycle it, as we talked about earlier and reprocess it, and we didn't put it into advanced reactors in the future, every hundred years, you could just build new casts and switch it from one to the other, and you wouldn't have any issue with storing it. You don't necessarily have to put it into a yucca or any other interim storage repository or a deep bore repository. It can be safely stored where it is now next to existing plants. And again, the, the scale of it, it often gets misrepresented. You know, a football field 24 feet deep is nothing compared to just the amount of coal ash that would come off of one coal plant, which is also radioactive, by the way, in any given year. So 
what we've done over 65, 70 years is minuscule in comparison. The next two, and they're kind of related, that's why I bring them up together, are around the, the weapons discussion and national security. So, you know, one being that, you know, any investment in a nuclear will also coincide with investment in nuclear weapons and weapon technology. And, and those, those weapons will get smaller and more efficient, harder to detect and equally as destructive. And then the national security around, you know, what if the technology itself gets in the wrong hands and maybe technology that's not being used for weaponry at all gets in the wrong hands, terrorist group, terrorist cell, and all of a sudden can be converted into weapons. And so how, how would you answer opponents who kind of are coming at it from those two angles? Well, so the key to getting to nuclear weapons is really highly enriched uranium. The uranium that's used as fuel in existing nuclear reactors is only enriched up to four to 5%, which is far less than what you would need to actually create a nuclear weapon. So as far as a proliferation concern goes, it wouldn't be useful unless you were you had the infrastructure to then also be able to go and take that fuel, reprocess it, and then enrich it. And at that point, it would just be easier to mine uranium on your own and I guess start the, the process from scratch. So I, I've never really understood that argument because there isn't a, a proliferation concern from the existing fleet as to what you could do. As far as innovation and you know, with developing these new technologies like advanced reactors and others lead to even more dangerous and, and smaller bombs. I don't, I don't see it that way at all. The military kind of complex around nuclear weapons is completely different than where we are on the commercial side and trying to develop these, you know, atoms for peace, as Eisenhower said, is kind of what, what our focus is and they're, they're disparate. I, I don't see there being much overlap between the two there. And then the next one that comes up are the accidents. And we talked about this a, a little bit. And, you know, it's funny how, you know, the media and the public has a, you know, its own <laughs> sort of warped way of remembering things. I even, when I, sometimes when I ask people about Fukushima, they have no idea there was an earthquake or a tsunami. They're just like, oh, the nuclear accident. I was like, well, no, 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 no. There is a 9.0 magnitude earthquake off the, off the coast that sent a, 60 some foot wave <laughs> and series of them that tore that city apart and, and caused all the death. And in the process also caused it the melt, caused the meltdown. But of course people remember, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, they don't, they literally forget about the earthquake and they yeah. just think of the nuclear meltdown. So the accidents, they were very much an issue, right. And, you know, 30, 20 years ago, but it sounds like there's a lot of innovations. The self-cooling reactors are like a key one there that are happening that are in market that make this much more safer and just, you know, the likelihood, would you say the likelihood of a nuclear accident using modern technology, not old nuclear technology, using modern technology is the likelihood of, let's say in the range of how likely it is you're, you are to get struck by lightning to how likely you are to get hit by a car, which is much more likely or in a car accident, where would you put the modern nuclear technology having a, a meltdown? Probably as likely as getting hit by lightning like 10 times in the same, same person in the same day. You know, we're talking one hundred billionth, one trillionth of a chance with, with modern technology. And I, going back to Fukushima, you know, you really hit on something too, is the larger context of what happened there. And I think it's important also to remember that there are five reactors at Fukushima. Three of the reactors had built up higher seawalls and had moved their backup generators to being above ground level. The other two, and which was based on international recommendations, the other two, the ones that melted down, didn't have higher seawalls and had their backup generators below the water level. So when it got flooded, backup generators went offline and the reactors were able to melt down. Meaning, essentially, if they had done to all five what they did to those first three, there wouldn't have been an accident. At Fukushima. So those are, I mean, most of these things are human error and are, and are honestly like, you know, learning experiences that I think any industry has to go through. And unfortunately, a lot of, I mean, almost every one of them could be prevented. Chernobyl was easily prevented. The Russians knew as early as the mid 1950s that their designs for their RBMK reactors were inherently flawed and that they could have an uncontrolled chain reaction that got away from them, leading to essentially a massive incident like we saw at Chernobyl. And Chernobyl is about the worst case scenario that you can ever imagine. And even now people are able to go visit visit the exclusion zone at Chernobyl. So I'm not saying 
Chernobyl by any means is a good thing, but it hasn't meant that like you had to stay away for a thousand years. I mean, they're now after the HBO miniseries, people are going to tour you know, the area around Chernobyl yeah. and things like that. So more than anything, I think Chernobyl is an indictment of kind of a totalitarian, closed, secretive regi- regime that doesn't want to have the hard questions asked and allow people to raise challenges to the decisions that are being made. Whereas in the U.S., we operate very differently, very transparently, and we also have the independent U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission that has two full-time employees at every existing reactor in the United States monitoring everything day in and day out. And we have what's considered the gold standard of safety for the world when it comes to U.S. nuclear generation. We also we also mentally associate Chernobyl with USSR, with Cold War, and we, we sort of have a lot of like negative mental associations with Chernobyl beyond, you know, the kind of nuclear side of it. And so I think that also it's, it's hard to disassociate those things because they're so kind of ingrained in us as, as Americans. Yes. And then the, the other big detractor is, of course, the cost. Now, this one does have some validity. There, it seems like majority of nuclear projects go way over budget, take way longer than they should. And I don't know if that's because they're being under budgeted in the first place or because it truly is that hard to build these plants in the traditional way. But they are cost intensive. They are yes. capital intensive. And so I guess two, two things, how in the, in the modern nuclear technology and the smaller plants and using the smaller reactors, how do the startup costs compare to other forms of energy? And I guess the, the second question behind that, it will probably still always be more upfront than some other, some other energy sources of energy in a world where we also don't want to increase the sort of inequality gap between the haves and have nots, the developed countries and developing countries, for those developing countries, if nuclear does become a really critical energy tool for the future, but an expensive capital, capital intensive one, how do we make it available and accessible to other parts of the world? Well, I mean, I think, you know, you look at international financing and support from the U.S. and other developed nations to go in and, and help offset those capital costs up front. But to get back to the earlier part of your question, which I think will answer kind of that latter part, is, you know, the new technologies that are coming online, the cost is is greatly reduced. So you take SMRs, advanced reactors like Terra Powers and X-Energies, that modularity. So instead of, you know, the, the largest cost for any new nuclear plant using the existing technology, like what we've built so far, is concrete. And that also leads to huge amounts of time. So you're putting all this capital up front, like you said, hugely capitally intensive, but these plants will operate for 80 to 100 years. Over that 80 to 100 years, the costs bear out very nicely and it becomes very cost competitive. The challenge is, is that in the past, we've had environmental groups and others trying to shut down those reactors earlier. So if you're thinking about making that investment and saying over 80 years, this is going to pay off for me for on the price of electricity as it's going to come down over and over again. And as I'm able to upgrade parts and get more output and generation from the plant, essentially lowering my overall cost, making it more cost effective, then that's a great business model unless you get shut down after only 20 years of operation. So being able to have one for the existing fleet, have that huge lead time is very helpful. The new reactors though, these designs, the modularity of them is going to be critical because so many of the parts are built by Siemens, by Siemens or GE. So they're off the shelf, as we like to call them. You're not having to build everything on site. You can have everything manufactured and then assembled on site, which will greatly reduce the time as well as the cost that it takes to build them. And then when you need to replace a part, unlike the existing fleet, which has so many unique parts that there's maybe one or two people in the world that can you know, fix it or build you a new one, you, know, you can call up one of these major um, companies that does all these things for manufacturers and industrial applications and say, hey, I need another turbine, send it over versus I need to build one from scratch. But that's the, the real big change in cost and not needing as many redundant safety systems, having a smaller footprint, having less staff to actually operate and run them safely. All those things over time, not only lower your construction costs on the front end, but your operations and maintenance costs on the long run. I think a helpful analogy for folks is to think of the personal computer. Right. The personal computer used to be these big, massive devices, very expensive to, to build, very hard to repair. And over time, it became smaller, more efficient, more modular. And that just made it more accessible. And you know, maybe nuclear is kind of going through its own version of that right now. It needs to. So for Energy Northwest, 
what percentage of the energy you're providing is currently nuclear compared to other renewables? And where, where do you see that long-term? And what are some of the nuclear deals or partnerships that you're working on that are really exciting? So currently, you know, what we provide to customers, that's a little bit hard to quantify. I'd say, I mean, our biggest asset is obviously Columbia Generating Station, which 1,207 megawatts around the clock that is generated from that nuclear power plant. Then we have wind, solar, storage, and then we operate and maintain some other hydro facilities as well. And we own one of our own hydro facilities in the Cascade Mountains. So that's a couple hundred megawatts between the rest of those. So I'll put it this way, Columbia Generating Station year over year accounts for eight to 9% of all electricity generated in Washington state from that one plant. All wind generated in Washington state is 7%. So that kind of gives you an idea of all the windmills that are built all across the state. When you drive through here, you can kind of see them on every ridge and any part of the state you're in, you'll see windmills that doesn't even, all of those don't generate as much electricity as that one nuclear plant does out near Columbia Generating Station. And then what are we excited about going forward? Well, it's what we've been talking about. The innovations, the new reactor technologies coming on board. You know, Washington State's really been leading the way with the Clean Energy Transformation Act. Oregon just passed something similar in a clean energy standard as well, just in early July, essentially leading us to have a carbon-free electric grid by 2045. If we're going to do that and do that successfully and do it in a way that we can maintain a reliable grid that's also affordable so that, you know, people can still afford to live here, we can attract new business and you know, maintain a sustainable economy, you're going to need an integrated energy system where you have resources that are complementing rather than competing with each other. And we've done a lot of studies. You've seen studies from MIT, from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Really, pretty much every study that's looked at how do you run and maintain a carbon-free grid has found a major role for nuclear to play. We're not going to be building any more Columbia generating stations, these massive 1,200 megawatts. We're going to be building smaller reactors, small modular reactors, advanced reactors, micro reactors. That's what we're really excited about. And these come in uh, at much lower costs. So, you know, an existing reactor is probably 10 to $12 billion and advanced reactors in the 2 to $3 billion range. So one, the cost is a lot less and the capital costs up front are a lot less. But two, their ability to really integrate with renewables is something that is a game changer. So existing plants kind of operate best when they're just operating full steam ahead, you know, at 100% at all times. They're not, they can, but they're not great at quickly following the needs of the grid. So when you have like a bunch of wind and solar come on the grid and you don't need as much electricity, you can back down advanced reactors very quickly. That's where hydropower is really good, is being able to shut down and start up again almost minute by minute. Advanced reactors and SMRs can do the same thing. So when you're looking at the grid of the future, they integrate so well. I mean, it's like peanut butter and jelly. Renewables and advanced nuclears is kind of how I would like to, to put it. So that's what we're really excited about. And we're excited to try to build the first one here in Washington State in the next seven years. And, and that's what we're working on with X Energy and, and Grant County PUD to do. Amazing. Three really fast final questions, though, then we'll, I'll let you, I'll let you get out of here, so to speak. So the, the first one is, is it... Is it fair to say that in the near-term future, on a global level, we're not going to be able to meet our needs, our, our needs as set out by the UN Climate Report and others to get off of fossil fuels and still provide energy for 7.7 billion people without, without embracing nuclear? And is it also... Meaning, meaning there's just no sh short-term way foreseeable for non-nuclear renewables to provide the energy we need for this planet off of fossil fuels. And second to that, is it also fair to say for the U.S. to be energy independent and to be cutting back our dependency on fossil fuels and pollution levels, is it also fair to say that's not possible without nuclear either? Yes, both are fair to say. And on, on the second point, if, you know, Energy independence is a very interesting topic and one that over the last 10 years has changed a lot with natural gas. And we've become really energy independent because of natural gas. If you move away from fossil fuels, the only way that you can have enough electricity to power what the existing economy has and then what the future economy looks like with a lot more electric vehicles and therefore a lot more needed electricity to power those vehicles and replace the fossil fuel that's currently powering them you're going to need nuclear. And so if we're going to do that, we also need to develop the domestic supply chain to make sure that we're energy secure and not reliant on Russia or China for kind of key pieces of the puzzle, like uranium fuel, to operate our new fleet of 
nuclear reactors in this country. So yeah, both are are absolutely true. And I think that's what you're seeing out of you know, the UN Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change and their reports and what you're seeing out of even groups like the Nature Conservancy and others that have really come around and Union of Concerned Scientists who long were opposed to to nuclear are saying, well, there's no way to decarbonize without it. And last three, and just tell me what first thing comes to your mind. First question is, what is one policy change in the US or policy element you would like to see advanced to support nuclear? The second is on the nuclear front, what do you want to see come out of COP26? And the third thing is, what is the one, one thing that comes to mind that we can do to, to address the communications issue with the public on nuclear here in this country? So on the first one, I think we're seeing it now in the infrastructure bill. What I would like to see is a nuclear production tax credit come out and then continued funding for advanced technologies, both of which are in there. That I think is is what's really needed as well as kind of regulatory reform, not to make it any less lax, but to make sure that we're evaluating and, and regulating and certifying these new reactor designs in a way that makes sense rather than kind of using the process that was used for the existing fleets because the technologies are so different. Just like, you know, you wouldn't want the FAA treating, you know, a crop duster the same way it treats, you know, a jet airplane <laughs> if they were evaluating them for safety. It's totally different technologies. So this is an evolutionary technology that we're moving into with advanced reactors and SMR. So that, that's where I'd like to see on the first question. Out of COP26, I would love to just see a greater emphasis on nuclear and not as big of a focus on saying certain levels of renewables have to be met because every country is different. Every market's completely different. So to say like you have to 40% of your electricity needs to come from solar or from wind and to have such a huge focus on that, I think is a disservice to the ultimate goal of getting to clean energy because like I said, if you're you're trying to provide, you know, a blanket direction of vastly different situations, not just in our country, but around the world. So what I would love to see is a technology neutral approach where they say anything that's carbon free should be pursued and should be pursued in the way that best works for your country, your state, your city, your utility to serve your customers reliably and affordably with electricity. And then. Let me see if I can remember the third question. I no, the third one head. was, what is one thing that comes to mind that we can do to address the communications challenge it has with the public and to, to you know, the, the negative associations people have with nuclear? We really need our leaders to go out and start talking about it more often. You know, in private, both sides of the aisle, there's a general embrace of nuclear and understanding of the role it needs to play. But in public, it's not, you don't have that same support and excitement about uh, these new technologies. It's kind of like eating your vegetables is the way it's treated in some way. Like, yeah, I don't want to do it, but if I have to, it's, you know, what we need to do to get to deep decarbonization. I would rather them look at it as this is an amazing technology where we barely scratched the surface and we're not just trying to limit greenhouse gases for the next 25 years. We're trying to do this for centuries. And if we're looking at which technologies have the greatest potential to provide abundant clean energy for centuries to come, nuclear is the only one that really hasn't been had serious development. Who knows where we could be the, 50, 100 years from now. For the two very visible politicians on the left around climate and the Green New Deal, so I'm thinking of Bernie Sanders and AOC, they're probably the most outspoken about it and also have the kind of most attention well-known where do they sit on nuclear? And because I, I don't see a lot coming from either one of them on nuclear, but certainly they, you know, they, they definitely align with you and I and the need to get it to, for carbon free energy. But I, I don't see it good or bad. I don't see them, you know, kind of kicking it or, or sort of putting it down. I don't see them building it up. Where do you think they stand and that kind of wing of the Democratic Party stands on nuclear? Yeah, I, I think they've kind of come around to, not denigrating it and being opposed to it. But I think personally, they're not very supportive of it. And what we really need is people to come out and talk about the way that these systems can work and how a grid could work with renewables and new nuclear together. And so just talking about renewables is leading people down a road that just isn't possible. If you wanna say, we're gonna do everything with renewables and storage, that's a great talking point. It looks really good on a bumper sticker, just not possible. We're a utility, we deal with this day in and day out. If, we, if, it, if that could be done and if what they say is true, that renewables are so cheap and they can do this, then every utility would be doing it. Well, why wouldn't we want cleaner energy and cleaner electricity already? 
it's just not the case on the ground when you actually have to be the one to crunch the numbers and make sure that people's lights turn on when they need them to turn on and businesses can operate when they need to operate. It's just not that simple. Yeah. Well, one of my, my dream dinners is to, is to have Bernie and AOC as uh, as, as dinner guests someday. This is probably not going to happen. I don't know them. I don't know anybody else that knows them, but if it ever does, I will bring it up. Well, you, you got it out there now. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> well, wonderful. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for the work you're doing. It's been really insightful. And I hope for the folks listening that, you know, this gives you some, some more perspective on nuclear and, you know, please go out and spread the word and let people know that this is an important, important ingredient in solving the climate crisis. It's, 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 it's pivotal that we embrace it and, and we do it the right way and we continue to innovate it to, to make it safer, but it needs to be embraced to have the funding to feed that innovation. So these things all go hand in hand. Absolutely do. And, and thank you, James, so much for having me and for all the work that you're doing. And it, it was a pleasure to speak with you today.